anyone abandon someone who is of their own body for doing nothing but being themselves. Welcome to Daring to Tell, true stories read by the writers who have lived them. I am your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. And nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. This podcast features nonfiction, and those are the sorts of books and stories I always gravitate toward. But just last month, I finished a few consecutive writing classes with the writer and teacher Tanya Whiten called Narrative Elements. I loved her teaching, so big shout out to Tanya. I can't tell you how fantastic it was. And what was totally different about it from every other writing class I had ever taken was that there was a mix of both fiction and memoir writers in it together. There was someone writing a cozy mystery, a genre I had only learned of recently. Another woman was writing young adult sci-fi, or maybe it was speculative fiction. I'm not even sure about some of these genres. Another woman was writing a truly chilling horror thriller. And then there were a few of us also writing memoir. But what was a little groundbreaking for me, yes, if something can be a little groundbreaking, was whether the story was grounded in truth or in the writer's imagination the elements of creating a compelling story were the same. Not surprising, but still, it was a little bit of an epiphany for me. What makes something a scene? What changes happened over the course of that scene? How will you show the emotion of the characters? It was all really, really good stuff. I bring this up because today's writer is another Tanya, Tanya Coates. And Tanya Coates is someone who has been stretching her craft by writing both fiction and nonfiction. So today she will be reading nonfiction, of course, a recent personal essay called To Do No Harm. Before we get started, a reminder that my friends KJ Delantonia and Jenny Nash over at Hashtag Am Writing Podcast, now at the start of August, are a few weeks into their Blueprint for a Book Challenge. It is not too late to join in or certainly to listen. I will say I am really loving it. It's giving me all kinds of things to think about and create kind of guardrails, I'll say, for my own writing. I've been following along with the assignments that we get each week, and I think it will help you put some structure around what it is that you are trying to write, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Again, that is the hashtag M writing podcast. So one more quick note. At one point before Tanya reads her essay, she mentions about how in her nonfiction, the characters just come to her. Of course, she meant her fiction, not her nonfiction. So that's just one little clarification. Here we go. Tanya Coates on Daring to Tell. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Tanya is a writer and a doctor and a mother. And we are going to hear mostly about those latter two roles, the doctor and the mother, in your essay today that we'll hear. Maybe if you want to first start by 
telling me a little about your writing story. Yes. So as a physician, my training did not prepare me to think I wanted to be a writer. But one of my friends who I went to medical school with was going to a conference in a very interesting place for me. And she said, why don't you come? And so I was in the midst of young motherhood. And I was like, sure, let's, let me take a break mm-hmm. with her. It was a conference for physician writers. Oh. And I had enough lead time to say, I wonder if I could write. Mm-hmm. And the conference said that if you had a certain number of pages by a certain time, they would review them. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I started writing my first novel. I wrote mm-hmm. it, sent it in, and went to the conference. Because I just didn't want to go and just be a hangers-on. I wanted <laughs> to be involved. <laughs> I have to, can I say just how ambitious that is to decide you're going to go to a conference just to kind of get away and you decide to write a novel in the course? Oh, my God. Yeah, looking back. What was it about? What? So, yes, it's a mystery, a thriller novel uh, about a physician mm-hmm. and her family. And her son has been accused of maybe being a serial rapist. And she was assaulted when she was in college. And so the question is, is her son the child of her husband or her rapist? Oh. And so it's, you know, whether or not the way people act and whether or not criminals could be a DNA, you know, inherited, or is it all society driven? Right. So nature versus nurture. Nature versus nurture. And I will also say that you and I had the pleasure of getting to know each other in another writing class together with our writing teacher, coach, Nadine Kenny Johnstone. And um, so I do know from that that you do writing on ancestry and I guess genetics also are a Mm -hmm. real interest for you. So it was at that point you just said, I have this idea, I'm going to write a mystery thriller novel. Mm Mm-hmm. And did you read a lot of them? Was that kind of, or would you? Oh, for sure. For sure. I was, I had done a lot of reading Michael Crichton, you know, authors right. like that. So definitely. So I was hoping you'd tell me a little bit about the fiction because I find that really interesting. And in our class together, I know it's all nonfiction and obviously that's what I mm-hmm. focus on for Daring to Tell. But as I've taken other writing classes and I listen to a lot of writing podcasts as well, And I think what has struck me the more I go on in writing is how there's so much to learn regardless of whether we're writing fiction or nonfiction. Absolutely. So how do you decide, like, this will be fiction, this will be nonfiction? How does that work? So in my quest to study writing and to learn about writing, and I have joined a writer's workshop, and that's where I first met Nadine. Mm -hmm. And I've just learned that writing is writing, you know, storytelling. And it doesn't matter if it's nonfiction or fiction. You need to engage the reader. You need to tell a story. And so with our writing coach, Nadine Kenny Johnstone, she is really a memoirist and leads people through that type of writing. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the exercises that she gives, she always says it can be used for either. And so I'm usually trying to write part of my fiction or use the tools for writing fiction. But I've also started writing more nonfiction essays. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason why I never wrote nonfiction essays is who would want to, you know, 
other than medicine, what do I have to say? Mm -hmm. And the more I read others' biographies and things like that, I think, well, maybe there is something I might have to say. I love that, to discover we all have a voice, we all have a story, and you have some really good ones. Thank you. (laughs) So... (laughs) What has kept you writing, I guess? I mean, clearly, if you did this for the conference, but Mm -hmm. something uh, latched on there. Oh, I'm a very competitive person. I compete, and the person (laughs) I compete with is myself. Let's Uh just start there. That's the best one, actually, I think. I'm a competitive person, and I'm a finisher. Um, And I think that's probably true of a lot of physicians. We don't start things to not finish them. Mm. (laughs) You don't finish them, things don't really go well. Yeah. And because in my nonfiction life, the characters just come and they speak to me. People debate whether or not that happens to them or not, but I think it's fun. Mm-hmm. When I went to this conference, I met two fabulous physician writers. One was Tess Gerritsen. I don't know if you know her, but no. um, she started as a romance writer. She wrote a series of books that eventually became a television series and she went to the same undergrad I went to and so it was just very inspiring to me and then the other gentleman he's now deceased also was they were just very encouraging Mm -hmm. and so I just said you know let's keep it up I was raising small children so I was slowly writing then Recently, I've become a empty nester. And that was one of the, you asked me what kept me going, was that since I decided to step back from medicine mm-hmm. and stay home, I wanted to have something to do when I became an empty nester. I wanted it all developed. I didn't want to be looking for something. And so last August, my youngest went away to college. In September, I sat down and started trying to really become disciplined in writing. Wow. That's a good background. So let me not put us off any longer. I will ask you to read your essay that is called To Do No Harm. Just go on ahead anytime. Thank you. On January 25th, 2001, after an emergency cesarean section performed with me intubated and under full anesthesia, I awoke in the hospital surrounded by my husband, sister, parents, in-laws, and no baby. It was two days before my birthday, six months before I would complete my training as a physician, after two miscarriages, after first trimester bleeding with this pregnancy, a full day of laboring, monitoring showing my baby in distress, and a failed epidural. About 24 hours after his birth, I finally held that baby in my arms and I vowed at all costs to protect him from any harm. I was a burgeoning family physician trained in obstetrics, married to a burgeoning orthopedic surgeon with basic knowledge of obstetrics. When I woke with no baby in the room, I knew things were not good. I looked at the people around me, trying to read in their eyes, who would tell me the truth about the demise of my baby? You see, the television version of mother-baby post-delivery care is fairly accurate. The baby is born and given immediately to the mother for skin-to-skin bonding. If the mother is unavailable, then the father is sitting in the corner, distressed with an infant swaddled tightly. Not seeing any of this sent off alarms in me, summoning all my courage 
Through clenched teeth, I curtly asked my husband, what happened to our baby? Did he die? He smiled at me and told me our baby was fine in the neonatal intensive care unit. Well, how is he fine if he's in the NICU? Take me to him. He explained that I could not be willed anywhere so soon after surgery. I would have to wait until tomorrow. Okay, then where's my picture? Predating cell phone cameras, every hospital nursery had a Polaroid camera for families to show evidence of their new offspring. He hastily left, returning with a photo of the most beautiful baby. He had very light tan skin and soft wavy hair. There was no way his skin would gain the pigmentation to match the darkness of ours. Short of becoming hysterical, I cried, that is not my baby. Either tell me the truth or take me to him. As they tried to convince me he was ours, I prayed for strength. After some negotiation with an admonishment from the nursing staff, past the pain from my incision, I was wheeled to the NICU. We stopped in front of a clear box holding the baby from the picture. I called out his name and my baby shimmied toward my voice. I was a mother to this perfect boy. In an instant, his life flashed before me. Ushered through a world not meant for black men, under my protection, in reverse order, I saw my future grandchildren. I saw him married to an equally compatible black woman. I saw him growing up a strong black male. On that day, I began to cry as I told my family that he was trying to leave me for college. They laughed at me. I prayed I would be the mother this baby of mine deserved. It is likely very common when someone becomes a parent that one compares themselves to their own parents or examples of parents they have experienced, for better or worse. Further, we cannot fully appreciate the difficult choices a parent makes until faced with our own parenting challenges. Always wanting to be a mother and a doctor from the age of two, you could find me carrying a baby doll and a doctor's bag. I did everything I could to prepare to be the best at both. Born into an ever-expanding extended family, I dreamed of mothering four children, like TV mom Dr. Claire Huxtable. An African-American woman, I was raised to know that we had to be better than our Caucasian counterparts to rise to the same level. I'd have to study harder and get better grades. In 1985, I was breaking away from parents who I thought were controlling and stifling as I traveled over 2,000 miles to a politically fluid and exclusive Stanford University in Northern California. The university offered me the best scholarship opportunity. I could have stayed closer to home for education, but I worried my parents would not allow me to make my own life choices. They were a bit stricter than the norm for the time. For example, I was not allowed to date in high school or even attend my senior prom. I was not sure if my career choices at that time were theirs or mine. Another challenge of my upbringing was the religious influence. My paternal grandfather was pastor of a large missionary Baptist church on the south side of Chicago. Our family was tight and close-knit with almost 100 first cousins. 
many of whom attended Christian schools. I attended Lutheran schools from kindergarten through 12th grade. I loved my family and embraced my faith fully, but I came to understand that the same people and institutions that were teaching me the golden rule of treating others as one wanted to be treated did not always extend that love and acceptance to everyone, particularly not to anyone who was not like them. But I branched out from a religious education that I had completely and thoroughly embraced into a world of the unknown. I would become an adult in the Bay Area as the AIDS pandemic settled in. I was quickly and lovingly introduced to people and lifestyles I knew my family did not accept. At my university in the late 80s, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance, as it was called, was the organization responsible for expanding my views on gender and sexuality. I learned that my friends in the LGBTQ communities experienced discrimination as readily as I did as a black person. Upon crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, I was determined to love all people, open to all lifestyles. The first time my son told me, I like boys, he was 11. All my training and conditioning had not prepared me to welcome my own gay child. I loved him, sure, but I told him he was too young to know he was gay. The second time he told me he was 13, I said, do you know how hard it is for a black gay male in America? He said, do I have a choice? My son is smart, kind, nerdy, and empathetic. He has ADHD. It would be hard enough making it unscathed through the world as a black male with the full support of his family. I was raised in a generation that believed that being gay was a choice, which I now understand is not a choice. I did not want him to choose a lifestyle that put him outside the protection of our community and faith. I wanted to protect him. He heard in my voice that I was unaccepting of him. Was the harm I had administered irreparable? How had I forgotten my pledge to myself to be a better mother? One of my first nights on call as a medical student, I sat in the ICU room of a patient as the machines that echoed the rhythms of his heart slowed. Our team had taken care of this man for many weeks when he entered the hospital, and it became increasingly clear that he would not leave on his own volition. When I first met him, he was still talkative and hopeful. He was alone. His partner had died, no family had visited. When taking his history, I asked about next of kin and who we would call to inform of his status. He gave his mother's name and phone number, but said not to call unless it was absolutely necessary. On this night, he gripped my hand as if he was falling off a cliff, his eyes bulged out of their sockets, begging me, tell her to come. His body, no longer the size of a man of a few weeks ago, lay swaddled in his blankets. When I finally called his mother, she said, I do not know who you are talking about. He was waiting for someone who told me she was not coming. I swore I would not be that person. 
How can anyone abandon someone who is of their own body for doing nothing but being themselves? Even in its extreme, this is exactly what I felt I did to my own son, just denying who he said he was. I felt I was inflicting harm on him that I swore I would not do to anyone. I stood with my medical school classmates at graduation, right hand held high, tassels softly sweeping my cheeks, tired from smiling, a tear pulling on my eyelid as we parroted the words of the Hippocratic Oath. To do no harm is the line I landed on. It gripped my heart. It doesn't matter what you do right to a person if in the end you have done harm. I learned how to be a doctor, taking care of men, women, and children destined to die at the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. My practice grew through the time when people could live good lives with the disease, until now when you can live with the virus at undetectable levels. I watched men die because they lived their lives out loud. I saw people die alone, and I pledged when I became a mother, I would love and protect my children at all costs. Even as I experienced discrimination myself, it was not unusual for colleagues to ask, how did you become a doctor? I had patients refuse to be treated by me. I did not want my son to experience the harm that isms can cause to his spirit or discrimination to his body. As my son grew from the double digits to a true card-carrying teen, I fretted over every blip in his personality or self-confidence or unhappiness. Was it proof of the harm I had inflicted? Did I cause his depression, his anxiety, his social awkwardness? I spent most of the time I had with him trying to make up for my misstep. Hugging, talking, apologizing to him for any and everything. All of that was often heaping on more harm. He started to pull away from me and not to talk to me at all. Then I did not know, still don't, if he would be all right, but I wanted him to know I am always there. In January 2022, my baby boy turned 21. I am proud of the man he's becoming, despite questioning if I have been the best mother I can to him. On paper, he is mostly well, thriving at his university even though his depression and anxiety continued to follow him. Having accepted his invitation to be an interloper at his birthday celebration, I sat at a table in a restaurant for grown-ups with our family, anxiously awaiting his arrival. The last time I had seen him when he left home after winter break, he had been brooding and sad, although I poured love and attention on him. On this day, I spotted him before he saw me, the piercing brown eyes of his man-child face on his grown man body scanned the room for us. I called out his name. His eyes shimmered when they found me. His face glowed with a light and smile not always present. This being, who used to ride my shoulder with his entire face and head buried in my neck, smothered me long and tight. Thank you for being here, Mommy. I love you. I know you will always come when I call. That's very beautiful, Tanya. That is, this is such a powerful,
powerful essay and there's so much in it. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading it. What was daring about this for you? What was, what was daring about writing this for you? Writing was easy. <laughs> Sharing is what was daring about it. We still, no matter how comfortable I am with my, my son, myself, I'm still have family and friends or community who I'm not sure mm-hmm. would be as comfortable. So that was definitely. And also, once again, I didn't want to do harm to my son by putting out his stories, right? So I did have to ask his permission, and he was excited. Oh, that's great. I was wondering mm-hmm. if he, mm-hmm. so he's read it. Mm-hmm. Yes, did you read definitely. it to him? I didn't read it to him. I um, just had him read it yeah. and share his thoughts about it. So never thought about reading it to him. <laughs> <laughs> I, the reading it out loud, I have to say, is um, I don't know what your experience was even just now you feel when you read it. Oh, I definitely feel all the emotions, all the memories, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So one of the other things that I absolutely love about this is it ends on a happy (laughs) an optimistic note and it just makes me think so much about the pain of growing up you know um and becoming oneself and one of my questions has to do with roles so you have you have your role as a doctor and you have your role as a mother mm-hmm. and how how are those were those distinct for you how did they influence each other right it was very challenging um it is very challenging to separate the two sometimes i have to be very on purpose with it and i choose to lead with the mother mm. i have been very thoughtful about taking the back seat as a doctor and trying my best to pretend like I don't know anything when I'm dealing with them in that way unless things go awry then I really step up (laughs) what like what do you have an example well you know just if they're sick for instance and I'm taking them to the doctor and I don't agree yeah with something yeah yeah then I then I will but I do try to let the doctors doctor them as they would, you know, maybe there's instructions that I know that I've given my patients, but I try to listen to them as a patient and hear them as a patient. Right. And it's very important. Even when I was pregnant, I remember a couple of times that I didn't and I got in trouble for myself. So. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So you were going by your own instinct or? Correct. You thought yeah, you knew. Yeah. yeah. So that's another thing is sort of that I see in this essay coming into play is a large swath of time generational that we learn things from our parents or from the way that we grow up and we Mm -hmm. learn things from our own experience and then there's the lesson or the parenting I guess for lack of a better word that we want to instill in our children and were there things that you did that were maybe intentionally different than how you had been raised and how did how did that all come into play 
<laughs> Definitely, I try to let my children be themselves mm. um, without me telling them who they were or who they should be. And I, my parents probably would disagree, and they're still alive, so I have to <laughs> tread lightly. <laughs> but um, it's very interesting because I talk about church. Here's one thing is very interesting. I talk about church, and my parents in my life didn't always go to church as consistently as I did as a child and, and as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And so I placed more emphasis on it in my family than my parents did on me. So I so I would have my children to be more consistently going to church right. than my parents did on me. So it's interesting, though, because I don't think that I don't think my children would think that was the best idea, right? Right. I was going to say, what are what's their experience with church? Yeah. Because, you know, it's not, to me, the beliefs. It's the people. So I was like, you know, I believe in this. And I think believing in something is important. But as children, you see the examples. Mm-hmm. And that's what can harm right? Sometimes the examples. So even though I was saying, no, church doesn't, it doesn't matter what those people are saying or what they believe or how they are. That's what they felt. So if someone, you know, long before anyone at church would even think to know that my children might have been gay or queer, um, they might have said things and my children on the, you know, on the way home would tell us about this. And I was like, well, you know, it's the people. It's not the message. Mm -hmm. That's not what God says. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for children to believe that. So I think that here's one example where maybe my, I would have done better off with my, doing what my parents did. Mm -hmm. So my father was the PK, as we call it, pastor's kid. Uh And so during my, you know, developing life, he was also trying to decide where he landed in this space. So there, there were times when he called himself atheist or whatever, and now he's back into the church, but what he they pretty much let it's weird because they let us do what we wanted to do, mm-hmm. but we always went to Christian schools, so they were in charge of that part. So right, you right, kind right. Of have to be right in it there. It was so. there somehow, yeah. yeah. Well, that's so interesting because I do think that comes into play in so many ways for so many people that we get raised one way, and so you say, oh, and then mm-hmm. the next generation says well I'm gonna do this a little differently and then I actually had a discussion like this with um my I did a master's degree program about mother daughter relationships and individuation and separation and developmental theory and one of the things that she had said to me that kind of always stuck with me and and didn't hit me even until she said that we might do the opposite just because we do the opposite of something that's wrong doesn't make it right you know I mean and I'm using wrong and right as contrast but you know we might do the opposite of something that didn't really work for us and so you try and do something better and just because you're doing it differently doesn't mean you're necessarily doing it right no no and that's the statement when I said earlier that until you actually are experiencing or doing it, you know, you realize then that your parents were doing all that they could do. They were doing the best that they could do and 
you're doing the best that you can do and you're still not getting it right. And even if it's not, like you said, it may not be the same thing they're doing. Yeah. It still may not be right. Yeah. So I always tell everyone, I don't know if I'm a great parent or not so great parent. I won't know until my kids are like in their thirties with their own families or doing what it is they do and doing it well, then I'll be like, okay, I did okay. Or yeah. Not. <laughs> well, and that that's the other thing that I think is so important to keep in mind, and it's also is so difficult, is to not know these things right now when, of course, we have to have relationships and have these interactions and try and be present or be forgiving or be um, attentive, you know, like we want to try and be attentive and maybe the attentiveness brings harm, you know, so right. you just go, I can't do anything right. <laughs> no. So the, the, I, I just, I feel that so much in this piece. And, and I guess that also the question of what is harm and how, how do we do harm? We don't necessarily know mm-hmm. till later. Um, and I was thinking even in the medical sense, in a doctor's sense, there might be some harm for a greater good, but you don't know it, you know, or I don't know. That's so funny because I think everyone has learned over the past two years that we can do harm for the greater good, you know? Yeah. So as physicians, you have to kind of individualize what you're doing, you know, and the same thing as a parent, you have to individualize how you're parenting. It's not the same. It's not different from what you have, from Mm -hmm. from what has happened to yourself, and it's not the same from child to child. Yeah. I think another thing that is very present for me in this piece is that knowing the pain of discrimination Mm -hmm. can make it all that more difficult to accept Mm -hmm. that we might have been the inflictors of pain in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, what is the appropriate standard to hold ourselves to? And I know, uh, yeah, maybe that's more than (laughs) anyone can, (laughs) can answer, but you know, do you know what I'm saying? I, she's like, oh boy. Well, it's funny. I I think the golden rule is so, I mean, it's a great rule. Yes. If you apply it to everyone. Right. If you apply to everyone and everything, Mm -hmm. um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We're very good at it until we don't like it. And then, you know, so I think that's the important thing of discrimination for discrimination. I mean, just love everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, actually, when you say it that way, there's um, I think it's a Quaker meeting house church like on a road down near Mm -hmm. where we live and I hope I get this right I'll have to go drive by to look at it it says love thy neighbor no exceptions or something like that it's like yeah you have to apply it Mm -hmm. all across um here's another big philosophical one for you (laughs) can empathy be harmful is there can there be too much empathy that's another thing that I think about it's funny because I think my kids say that. They think so. <laughs> They're like, mm-hmm. you know, because you just want, I think sometimes we are imp- we're trying to be empathetic. It's really because we just don't want to be wrong about anything. Yeah. So, um, so you become agreeable to everything, and that's not always right either. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Another thing in general, when I think about writing nonfiction, 
I know that the birthday was pretty recent in the past for you. There's a lot of different themes in here. And is there, is this story a beginning, a middle, or an end? It's definitely not the end at all. I think it's more of a beginning. Mm. There's so much more left to happen. So much more has happened even since then. So Yeah. I was going to say, do you, I'm, I'm certain these are themes you think about all the time, but is there a next thing you're thinking about writing about next? Or what are your future projects or goals or ideations for, for your nonfiction writing? For nonfiction. Well, so I have two children and at least one of them feels that it's very important to be equal. So uh, so you're going to put the other one in the spotlight next? <laughs> I know. I, was... spotlight. I actually already have the essay um, that's that I'm sending around. It's actually the first one I wrote about the children. And so one of the things in nonfiction that I've really been thinking about writing, if I can get him, if I can wrangle him, is uh, writing with my husband oh. or, you know, writing our story together because we oh. met in medical school. And so we've gone through a lot of this together. It's been a lot of fun. So I think we both want to kind of sit down together and write that story. I love that. Mm-hmm. That would be so much fun. So writing your, would it be like sort of medical and personal of it? Medical together? and personal, yeah. It's kind of a, you know, you have to cross your fingers and knock on wood when you're saying this, but how to become physicians and stay in love and marriage, you know, with it all. So. I love that. Or, or not a how-to, just say, this is what we did. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> that is one of the things I always try to live or write by example, not necessarily uh, prescription, I guess, Correct. to carry the, <laughs> to carry right. the doctor right. analogy of it right. forward. Is there anything else about this you want to say? Yeah, well, you were asking about some other things. In my fiction writing, I one of the current thing that I'm writing about is about the relationship between mother and daughter. So it's fictionalized, but um, certainly about the relationship. I, sh- I shouldn't even say mother and daughter, just being in the sandwich generation. So writing about, you know, being this person who has young children and parents that are both needing your time and attention. Mm. And as far as we talked a little bit about generational ideas and things like that and where that comes into play is just huge for me you know everything that my children do we just wondered where is this coming from so I think that's just the fun part of it excellent excellent well um thank you so much for this I look forward to seeing more of your work likewise Michelle I really enjoy reading yours or hearing oh, yours thank as well. you thank <laughs> you so much um where can people how can people get in touch with you if they're curious Yes, I have a website, Tanya Coates Writes, uh, T-O-N-Y-A-C-O-A-T-S, writes.com. And I'm on Instagram at TriTLC. That's T-R-I-T-L-C. I like that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Daring to Tell. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I really enjoyed my time with you. Oh, man, there was so much to think about after this essay, the golden rule, and that sign that I was thinking about, I had seen at the Friends Meeting House. It says, love thy neighbor, in quotes, but then has in parentheses underneath it, no exceptions. 
and that I think is the point. These themes have really stuck with me as I have worked on this episode, especially her comment about empathy having a lot to do with not wanting to be wrong. Really astute observation. Lots of big questions to think about. If you enjoyed Tanya's writing, I have got a couple other links to her nonfiction work in the show notes. She has a recent piece in River Teeth called Cast Iron Generations. She also reads another one of her essays on Nadine Kenny Johnstone's podcast, Heart of the Story. The essay is called Are We Related? They both are great pieces, involve food and family, so I encourage you to check out more of her work in either one of these places. I am taking a little break from my bookstore mentions that I've been doing each month, but stay tuned for whatever I might cook up next for supporting local bookstores. Daring to Tell comes out the first Tuesday of every month. I hope that you will subscribe so that you won't miss it. If you have enjoyed this episode enough that you are still listening, well, heck, I hope you will share a link with a friend. You can sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, michellerado.com. And you can also follow my sporadic comments and occasional podcast recommendations on Twitter, at michellerado. Thank you to my husband, Phil Rado, for my theme music, Make Me Brave. And most of all, thank you for daring to listen. I hope you will be back to listen again. And nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up waterfall or taking away the ground. Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground